So you want to turn in your Bibles this morning. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be getting a new series uh, for the month of June and maybe a little bit beyond that. We're going to be talking about the church. And in particular for the church, we're going to be talking about spiritual gifts. And we're going to be doing a study on this. And I was looking back on a lot of the things that I've taught on over the past almost seven years. And I talk a lot about basic theology. I talk a lot about apologetics, two of my my favorite subjects. Apologetics, if you don't know what that means, it's the defense of the Christian faith. I also talk a lot about prophecy because it informs us about the current world situation and how we're supposed to live in light that Jesus is coming back soon. And I think that anticipation is important. I think there's a reason that Jesus put all that in the Bible so we can live in his resurrection power, so we can seek him while he may be found. And we, we want that kind of resurrection power in our lives. We want the Holy Spirit making us into the image of Christ. And how does he do that? Well, one of the ways that he, do, he does that, we're going to look at over the next several weeks. And a lot of it has to do with how we function as a church family in the subject of spiritual giftings. And the Apostle Paul dedicated three chapters about this subject in his first letter to the church in Corneth. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 are all about how the church family comes together, how it intersects with one another, how we serve, how we coexist, and how we fulfill this mission that Jesus Christ has given us. And one of the big ideas that I want to show you today is that church is not a competition to see who the most spiritual person is. It's kind of like saying, I bet you I'm a lot more humble than you are. It's kind of a it's kind of a uh, a weird thing that we look at. Like if I'm say, automatically say I'm more humble than you are, I'm showing pride, aren't I? So I'm not humble. So the church is not this competition to see the most spiritual, but it's instead a group of people whose personality, whose talents, whose giftings, even our life experiences, and even our individual faults can come together to bring greater depth to the whole. And one of the ways this happens is through the talents and abilities God gives to each and every single person. And in the church, we know these giftings as spiritual gifts. Now, during my ministry here, I haven't focused a ton on spiritual gifts. And there's a reason, and it's probably something that is just within me. Tammy and I didn't come to know Jesus as Lord, God, Savior, and King in an Assembly of God church. We came to Christ in an independent Pentecostal church that was very um, closely affiliated with the Assemblies of God in practice and, and conduct. All of our pastors, for the most part, except for one, were Assembly of God pastors. But they, um, over the years, because of several different things, kind of went off the rails a little bit. And they got into some spiritual practices that were not biblical, and even, I would say, downright heretical. And they would use many of the spiritual giftings in ways that did not follow biblical guidelines and did not bring glory to Jesus Christ. And because we saw the spiritual gifts abused and used in ways that did not bring glory to God, 
and led to division in the church, I've always kind of backed away from putting them first and foremost. Saying all that, though, we are an Assembly of God-affiliated church. By definition, the Assemblies of God is a Pentecostal Christian fellowship, which means we believe that the spiritual gifts described in the Bible are available for us today, just as they were in the first century church. So over the next few weeks, we're going to go and look at some of these gifts, what they are, what their purpose are, and how we use them to glorify God and strengthen the body of Christ. So let's start reading. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 1. This is Paul teaching us today. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, there are many kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are many different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are many different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Let me pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, that we take this, that you would take this kind of complicated kind of teaching and make it very apparent and easy for us to understand this morning. Lord God, I ask, Father, that you help us to put line upon line, precept upon precept, to build up the church and make sure that whatever we believe is rock solid founded in your truth, Lord. Father God, that's my prayer today, that your church may be built up. I ask this in your name. Amen. Because many people here may listen to TV or radio pastors. Anybody here listen to radio pastors in the car? I do. All the time, I go to work, drive around, drive to Marshfield, wherever I'm driving, I always usually have a sermon on. Many, though, of these people on the radio don't believe that spiritual giftings are for today. And sometimes they'll even say that. So I want to start out by saying there are two different beliefs about spiritual giftings that exist today. And the first one is the one we were alluding to just a moment ago. It is called cessationist. A cessationist means that the spiritual gifts ceased or stopped after the Apostle John died in about 90 AD. Those who believe this will point to the writings of the Anti-Nicene Fathers. Now that's a group of writings that were in the early church after the Apostle John died. So you have Clement and Polycarp, and, and there are some that are attributed to Peter, although I think those aren't necessarily Peter because he died too early. But anyway, there are a whole lot of writings that existed between them and the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD that wrote about life in the church during that point. And a lot of people who are cessationists will say, well, they didn't say anything hardly about spiritual gifts. So they must have stopped after the death of the Apostle John. And I said, and I would come back and say, well, It's important to understand that the anti-Nicene church, or or that which existed before the Council of Nicaea, existed upon threat of death by the Roman Empire. 
If you were found to be a Christian, you'd be thrown into the arena. You could be killed, your lands be confiscated, your kids sold into slavery. There was a very deep price for being a Christian in the early, um, in between um, about 90 AD to 325 AD. It was a death sentence if you were found out, by, depending on which emperor was on the throne. So there was no centralized Christian belief of what was going on in each one of the churches because there wouldn't be First Baptist Church like here in Whitehall and Cooley Community Church and Our Savior's Lutheran. It would be maybe one or two house churches meeting in secret. It was not out in the open. And this house church over here might believe this way. This house church over here might believe that way. And there's just no centralized doctrine of what being a Christian really meant. So cessationists will also point out 1 Corinthians 13 and, what, and why they believe this. And 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 8, says, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. And they look upon verse 10 very, very specifically there and say, well, the perfection has come. In other words, we have the established canon of the Bible. We have the entire written mind of God in our hands right now. That was a perfection. And now that that is with us, we don't necessarily need the spiritual gifts anymore because we have the perfect. Well, I would reject that argument only because there is nowhere within 1 Corinthians 13 that refers to the Word of God. It's not there. And so they're taking, they're doing what's called proof texting, which is trying to force your belief into the Bible instead of letting the Bible say what you're supposed to believe in. And I, I, I respect many of these guys, and I think that you can, or women, and you can listen to them. I think they're, they're, they're great pastors and great preachers, but I don't think that that is what the, Paul was trying to say there in 1 Corinthians 13. I think Paul, what Paul was referring to when we say that the perfect comes and the imperfect disappears, he's pointing toward a future event, meaning like heaven or the rapture, or the millennial kingdom, when we are face-to-face with Christ, and we won't need those kind of spiritual giftings because they'll just be part of who we are in Christ at that moment. We'll have a resurrected body. Therefore, we will communicate perfectly. We won't need tongues. We won't need prophecy because we'll automatically know the mind of Christ. We won't need these miracles because we'll be able to have and, and use them just because of who we are in Christ after our resurrection. So that is, is what the cessationists believe. And with some exceptions, this is the, the vast majority of mainline churches believe this. When I say mainline churches, I mean like the Lutherans, the Catholics. Most Methodists, most Baptists would probably be in this group over here. Obviously, we're not in that group. We believe the spiritual gifts are for today. And Assembly of God doctrine teaches that. Particularly, we focus a lot on speaking in other tongues. It's three of our 16 fundamental truths deal with that. And 
We're going to get in to that in, a, in probably next week or the week after, so stay tuned. We'll talk a lot more about that. But today I want to so focus on the source of these gifts so we can understand that. Spiritual gifts, as indicated by their name, they come from the Holy Spirit. And that leads us into the next point of today's message. One of our fundamental beliefs, and it's the fundamental beliefs of all Bible-believing Christians, is a belief in the Trinity. We believe that God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't believe in three separate gods. Muslims will accuse us of believing in three separate gods. No, we don't. We believe in one, set, one God and three persons within the same Godhead. And if you want to talk about the reason the Council of Nicaea that I was talking about a moment ago, that's the reason that Council was formed, is because there were so many beliefs about the nature of God that they all came together after Constantine came into power and, and allowed Christianity to exist. Now all the church leaders could come together and, and nail down exactly from the, the scriptures what the Bible said about God. And this is what caused most of the fights in the early church. It was this idea of Trinity. I also say that the idea of Trinity, of a triune God, is probably one of the most difficult things for us to figure out. So I'm just going to tell you now, I've, I've sat there, I used to think that I had it all figured out, and then realized that, no, that's actually heresy, what you think, when I started actually studying going to Bible school. And I just came to the point of being comfortable with mystery. And... Any earthly analogy we can make about the Trinity at best falls short, or at worst, again, leads us into very wrong thinking. The Trinity is something that has to just be accepted by faith. So just saying that. I bring that up because we need to understand that the Holy Spirit is, number one, he's a person. He is not some impersonal essence that just comes around and, and guides us. He is equal part of the Godhead with the Father and the Son. He is worthy and deserving of worship, just like the other two members of the Trinity. At least in my day, how many people here grew up Lutheran? So you'll recognize some of this. If you went through Lutheran Confirmation, again, at least in the 1970s, early 1980s, you were required to memorize the Apostles' Creed. And in my church, at least, we were also required either, I think, the Athenian Creed or the Nicene Creed. I chose the Nicene because it was shorter. Um, <laughs> the Athenian Creed's like pages long. So <laughs> um, I think that's the name of it. Uh, the Nicene Creed says about the Holy Spirit that I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and through the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified and has spoken through the prophets. That's essentially what the church believes about the Holy Spirit. And I'm laying all that down as a foundation to say this. Just like there are three separate persons within the Trinity, there are three expressions or roles that each member of this triune God has chosen to express the fullness of the Godhead. And to understand that, we break down verses 4 and 5 of 1 Corinthians 12, which says that there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are many kind, or different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are many kinds of workings, but the same God works all of them in all men. So what did that just say to us? Spiritual gifts are subjects and given by the Holy Spirit. Spiritual offices are subject and appointed 
by the Son, Jesus. Spiritual powers are subject to the will of the Father. Now to get a little bit more specific. The Holy Spirit distributes spiritual gifts. And we'll get into those very specifically in the coming weeks. But they, they would include, not exhaustively, but they would include speaking in tongues, prophecy, discernment, um, interpretation of prophecies, words of wisdom, knowledge, exhortation. These are some of the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that, that the Spirit gives to us. And these gifts are meant to be used corporately to build up the body. They are also to be used as a personal witness of the Holy Spirit's power in your life, in the life of others, and to serve as a witness to the unbeliever that God is present among his people. Those are the three reasons that the spiritual gifts are given. And again, more about that in the coming weeks. When you look at spiritual offices that Jesus gives, we look to um, Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 7 just to establish who Paul is talking about, so I won't be accused of proof texting. In Ephesians chapter 4, he's teaching the Ephesian church, and Paul says, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. So Paul is specifically talking about Jesus here. Now going down to verse 11, it said it was he, or Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. And the reason that he gave is seen in verse 12. To prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become a mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what we learn here is that Jesus sets the offices within his church. The Greek word for office is diakonia, which is the root word for deacon, meaning one who serves the body of Christ. And the idea of serving the body of Christ is very important because this is a service position. This is not a glorification position. And what I mean is, Many people want the title, but they don't want the responsibility that comes with that title. They want to be addressed. Jesus spoke to this, actually, when he said that these people want to be called rabbi in the, in the marketplace, but they don't want to actually stop and love people. I make this point because we've wandered a bit from the biblical interpretation of these offices in this 21st century. So I'm going to give just a quick synopsis, and probably be a series in the future. The apostles. Apostle is one who goes to the unreached, just like we were watching that video a few moments ago. Really, Troy and Heidi Joel are acting as apostles to that nation right now, and going and, and spreading the gospel where no one has ever heard it before. The prophets. Prophets carry supernatural messages from God. Now, most of the time in the Bible, when a prophet spoke, he was foretelling, meaning that he was speaking to a very specific situation that was going on right now. You remember when Samuel came to town, it said that the elders of the town shook in fear because he thought that he was coming to stick his finger in their face and say, the Lord God is saying this to you. 
That's essentially most of what a prophet's job is. Now, prophets are also famous for occasionally predicting the future or foretelling something that is about to happen. Much of the Bible is prophecy, that kind of foretelling prophecy. And so they have those two different functions and uh, mean to, to act as God's mouthpiece to his people. Then you have the evangelists. Evangelists are those who speak the gospel and have an unusually strong Holy Spirit charismatic gifting, one that will generally draw people to them. In modern day, we've kind of diluted this within the modern Christian church to mean a number of things. But what it does not mean is a person on TV, even if they call themselves a televangelist. That doesn't mean that every person on TV is bad, or radio is bad, some of them are good, but we all, we all know that a few of them are, are hoaxers, right? It also doesn't return, or refer to just an itinerant preacher who goes from church to church holding crusades and such. Evangelists' whole being, whole focus of ministry is wrapped around telling the unbeliever about Jesus and to encourage other Christians to tell people about Jesus. That's their entire life. Now, there are people on TV and have radio ministries who do exactly this, that. The one that, that pops into mind is Greg Laurie of Harvest Chapel. He, he is an incredible evangelist. One of the people who on the radio who spoke into my life and explained many of the deep things of Christ to me driving to work in the morning. So there are, there are honest people in, in the media who, who do this. And in the modern church, oh, I'm sorry. So that's, that's their whole being. So the next one we see is pastor. And a pastor is one who spiritually cares for the flock. And that word pastor means shepherd. That is their whole ministry. They are those, they're spiritual parents in, in a way. And they are meant to guide people into deeper relationships with Jesus Christ. That is the pastor's job. And in the modern church, again, I think we've misused and misapplied the title of pastor in many, many instances. And we've gone to two extremes with it, meaning either that the pastor is the ultimate authority over everything, or we water it down to mean anyone who happens to work in the church full time. We've kind of gone to one of those two extremes. Uh, some churches have pastors of information technology. Apparently, they, they minister to a website. Some of them have ministers or pastors of finance. Apparently, their, their goal is to get QuickBooks saved. Pastors of facilities. Apparently, the church building needs savings, so they're, they're going to mentor that church into, into a deeper relationship with Jesus. You see, you see what I mean? It's, it's kind of silly. And if you're really interested in seeing the role of a shepherd pastor, you can see it beautifully illustrated in the 23rd Psalm. And you know, I forgot my illustration point this morning, so I'll have to um, pantomime it. I was going to bring, I have a shepherd's um, crook at home that they gave me when I first became a pastor here. And we all know what it looks like. Shepherd's Crook, and it illustrates the three uh, foundational ministries of a pastor. Now, in, in ancient times, a shepherd's crook also had a point at the end. 
So keep that in mind. So a pastor is to take his staff to gently lead the shape, and he may be leading them through life, and he sees a snake pit over here. So he doesn't want them to get too close to that snake pit over here, so he just gives them a gentle tap when they start wandering toward that interesting-looking hole in the ground. And usually that most sheep, that'll get them, oh, okay, there's more grass over there, I'm going to go over there. That's 99% probably of what most pastors would ever have to do. However, there are some sheep or church members, or pastors for that matter, but um, some, sometimes Christians can be a little stubborn, right? So they say, I want to see what that hole is over there that has a snake in it. So they'll, they'll turn and they'll start walking toward the snake, and the pastor will now turn the crook and give them a good jab with the sharp point of that, of that shepherd's rod to get their attention. Oh, I guess he doesn't want me to go over there. I trust my shepherd. I'm going to go this way in most cases. However, sometimes a sheep is so stubborn, he doesn't care how many taps you give him, how many jabs you give him, they're going to walk over to the pit and fall into it with a whole bunch of snakes. So the shepherd, right before they go in, will take the crook part of that, sh that shepherd's rod, grab them around the neck, pick them up, and throw them back into the middle of the flock to save their lives. Probably not the most comfortable thing in the world, but he does it to save their lives. It just shows the different um, levels of church discipline that you can see. And that is the ministry of the shepherd. So one really quick aside before I get to the teacher. There's a position that's not mentioned in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. But it's a position that I think we've homogenized that pastor role into in the modern church. We see this role in 1 Corinthians 3 and Titus chapter 1, and it's the position of elder. Elder and pastor are fairly synonymous in the early church, with the exception is when it came to authority. Pastors in the early church, and really the biblical definition of a pastor, is one that is just with the people all the time. But when you look at rank and authority, the pastor was actually at the bottom. When we talk about who the authority in the church is supposed to be, it was generally the elder. And again, I would encourage you on your own time, read 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 to see that. It was always the elder within the church. Now the elder may be what have one of these other offices that we've seen, but generally speaking, they were the leaders. Paul did not tell Titus and Timothy to go appoint pastors in every town. What did he say? Go and appoint elders. These would be the people who would actually run the church and be in charge. So, now that we've established that, let's go to the teacher. The teacher is one who is gifted to understand and teach the truth of God's word to the church. It's sometimes strongly tied in with that office of pastor, but it can also be a separate function. In all honesty, regardless of what you think about today's message, Teaching is more of my gifting than pastoring is, honestly. I know that about myself. I've been told that through senior pastors and mentors my entire ministry lifetime. Tammy actually has more of a gift of pastoring than I do. She does great with the kids when it comes to teaching, but she doesn't like the idea of being a congregational-wide 
preaching, she loves people. She loves hanging with people. She loves talking to people. Me, I'm kind of like, I love talking to people, but then I want to go back to my books. I want to go back to my office. I want to go recharge and, and think about what to talk about next Sunday. So I bring, bring all these up because these are the positions that fall under the dominion of what Jesus does. So let's look at what the Father's role is. Well, the Father's role within this is providing and deciding when and with when and where to manifest his power. If you look at verse 6, it says there are many kinds of workings, but the same God works in all of them in all men. Now the Greek word for working is energia, meaning a powerful, supernatural outpouring of what we would call miraculous power. When we talk about a miracle, we're talking about something that, that God uses to override his physical laws. To put it another way, God steps outside that natural order and that he has established to change something to glorify himself and to help others. Examples of, of energia are healing, time slowing. You remember in the Bible, God made the time reverse for a moment. He also slowed down time. He can do that. He's God. He's raised people from the dead. He's raptured people, meaning he's taken them from where you're sitting right now, directly into heaven without having to go through death first. He's caused floods, natural disasters. He does and does, and what he does and does not allow evil to do is also part of his energia or doing the um, restricting or allowing things to happen within the universe. It's God exercising his power. You say, well, why are we making that kind of a, of a delineation here? God's power is not something we can conjure up according to our will. Even Jesus, think about this for a minute. Why did Jesus pray? Why did Jesus like, go to the Father and pray for people to be healed? It's because within the Godhead, they have self-limited each other to these specific giftings. And so Jesus went to the Father through prayer to determine his Father's will for this power to be released. Now, that brings us to the last point for this morning. How do we know, when we speak about spiritual gifts, how do we know of what is being manifested, spoken, or done in God's name is actually God? I spoke, you know, being hesitant a little bit about allowing spiritual gifts within the congregation. And what are the people, what are the, um, the objections from people who are cessationists, particularly around um, speaking in tongues, is that people who practice voodoo speak in tongues. People who um, pra practice animistic religions speak in tongues. People... Um, who are Hindu or um, are into uh, transcendental meditation can speak in tongues. And if they do that, then, they must, then we must be manifesting that same evil spirit they are. But Paul gives us the criteria right off the bat. You remember that Satan will use anything God gives as a counterfeit to try to draw you away from God. And he gives us the criteria right in the beginning of what we read this morning. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. 
For you know that when you are pagan, somehow or other, you are influenced or led astray to mute idols. And therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Spirit or Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So what the Bible is saying here is if somebody is using a spiritual gift and pointing that gift or that ability to themselves, they are manifesting something that isn't of God. If they are using that spiritual gift to point you to Jesus, that is when the Holy Spirit is moving through them. This is why I have a problem sometimes with faith healers. Because do I think there might be some out there? Yeah. But when I, when I see them and the way they do things, it's manipulation. It's, it's using gullibility to, to make themselves richer because they point you to their gifting and don't point you to Jesus with it. When they do that, they are putting themselves in a position of a functional savior for you, and in soul, cursing Jesus. That is really the point behind that scripture. And that is how you discern true spirituality and the spiritual gifts. So in conclusion, I want to point you to verse 12 of 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 12. That says, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So whatever talent, whatever gifting, whatever ability God gives you isn't to be used for you. It's to be used for the good of others, particularly within the church. A quick personal example, and we're just about ready to close. For a long time, I've been a paramedic or an EMS for 30 years. And I've wondered why I had such a high level of what's called resiliency. Resiliency is a psychological ability to witness or experiencing, experience trauma and still be able to function normally. And I would always ask myself, even before I was saved, is, you know, people in combat, people in, in uh, post-traumatic stress, people in... Um, um, some of the stuff we go through as, as paramedics and EMTs and police officers and firefighters, why one person would have nightmares and be debilitated for the rest of their lives, and sim- and, but another person could see the same exact thing and shrug it off. And I'm one of those people that by and large shrugs it off. I, it does not bother me that much. And I, and I used to question why that is and why it made me so special. And Tammy and I were discussing it one day after I heard that another former co-worker killed themselves over post-traumatic stress. And Tammy looked at me and said, Duh, Holy Spirit, it's a spiritual gift. And what God just spoke to me at that moment, and he reminded me of this scripture, that greater is he who is within you than he who is within the world. The spiritual gifts are God's reminder that He is living within you. 
Almighty God, with all of His presence, with all of His power, with all of His miracle-working ability, exists in you. Let's all rise. That's what the spiritual gifts are for. To remind you of His love, His strength, and grace manifesting in your life.